and welcome to the Data Wranglers, a conversation about the latest trends in data engineering, hot takes, and insights on the data industry. I'm your host, Jeffrey Hare. And I'm Adam Wilson. I'm excited to be back on the podcast with you today, Jeff. Great to have you back, Adam. And you're in for a treat, as are our listeners. Today's guest is Moritz Stefaner, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. In his own words, Moritz lives and breathes data visualization and is an independent designer and consultant. Hi, Moritz. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Adam. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. Moritz, how does it feel to be on the other side of the microphone, so to speak? I know you also host your own uh, popular podcast, uh, Data Stories. Um, thanks for taking the time uh, to speak with us. It's a pleasure. It's, it's really nice to be interviewed for once and not, not be the one asking the questions, but being allowed to ramble as long as I want, hopefully. All right. Well, we'll see. Yeah. And I actually first got to know Moritz years ago uh, when he was creating visualizations of the scientific literature. This was particularly close to my heart as Moritz was an early power user of Flare, which was a flash-based visualization library I developed years ago, which was a precursor to more modern tools like D3. And wow, I mean, the times have really changed in terms of what's possible on the web. But what hasn't changed is that Moritz is still churning out projects with a potent balance of aesthetics and usefulness. So Moritz, um, time for some lightning round questions. For each one, you must pick one and only one option. No nuance, at least not yet. Designer or artist? Uh, designer. Big data or small data? I have to pick option three, thick data, obviously. Thick data. All right. Yeah. But in the end, I don't care really, as long as it's... Good data. <laughs> All right. We're going to come back to that then. Uh, so desktop or mobile? Um, still desktop, but I guess mobile is growing on me overall. Static or interactive? Uh, static, ironically. All right. And pie charts or 3D bar charts? Uh, that's a tough one. Can I skip? <laughs> <laughs> okay, you can get you can get one pass. So can I get one pass? Yeah, you, okay, you cool. passed the test. Well, well done, Moritz. <laughs> nice. nice. I, I don't know. You know, I don't want to like offend any camps here. I, I need to be very oh, careful. Okay. So, so uh, gracefully dodging the flame wars that could arise on the internet uh, in, in, in the wake of an answer to that question. Uh, care to elaborate on any of the, your responses? Yeah, I'd love to hear about uh, thick data and and uh, the other one that's intriguing is static. So I'd love yeah, to love yeah. to hear your thoughts there. Yeah, so in the data, I think the whole like big data trend is over anyways. And in my experience, also the absolute size of data sets or their like formal properties are often much less interesting than if they represent something interesting and if they're faithful to reality. And that is so independent of size or maybe it's even often the case with smaller data that it's maybe a bit more accurate and nuanced. So, but that's the one thing I actually care about. And on the static or interactive, I mean, I've been programming, scripting so many interactive pieces and I love it. I really, and I think that's the best form for data visualization. But nowadays I keep coming back to the beauty of static representations being like large maps or prints or also being like really small self-contained Titbits and little like nuggets of information that just tell you one thing really well. I, I and I think there was a time when people were but like making fun of that, like the infographic style. But I, I really get to appreciate the beauty of something that just works on its own on all kinds of devices for everybody, and will still work in ten years. You know, it's yeah. there's, there's something beautiful about that simplicity. And so camp static there, <laughs> right? I mean, echoing back to the you know the the, the flash tools, it's just sad. Your work and work from from folks at the New York Times and other places. 
really, I think, you know, foundational works in the field, you can't access anymore. So, so maybe yeah, the, the, the opinions around the, the death of interactive graphics aren't, aren't so um, overblown in, in certain respects. I think you just have to keep in mind when you do that, you have to design in an ecosystem and keep working in that system, you know, mm. and it needs to evolve. It needs to live all the time. You can't just do one-off interactives and hope they will be around in 10 years. I think that's, that's the lesson we all learned. <laughs> so that well. a lot of my earlier work is gone from the internet. It just lives on as screenshots or screen recordings, actually. Yeah. Well, well, actually something that I hope isn't necessary 10 years from now, but nevertheless, very important now includes your work on um, COVID visualization. And particularly, I know you helped uh, design the official German COVID-19 vaccination dashboard. So obviously serious life or death stuff. Can you walk us through the experience of launching that portal? Sure. I mean, that was in many respects a pretty unusual project. Um, as you say, it's high stakes and really important. So we were on it that together with Studio Nand and Cosmonauts and Kings, I was able to to do that and work directly with the Ministry uh, of Health. We had a very short time frame. It was a really moving target. The infrastructure to collect the data was being built as we designed the dashboard. So Ooh. it was basically all being built in parallel. And the interesting thing is we really designed the whole product in the browser from the get-go. So we just started coding on day one and took the data we were expecting to get and started prototyping and develop an MVP really soon. And the dashboard has been updated every two weeks roughly now for yeah over uh, nine months or 10 months. And so it's been really this ongoing um, refinement iteration process based on new data situation, new information needs, uh, feedback from outside. And it's called a dashboard, So, um, but it's not really. It's more an informative web application or really data-rich website. And our goal was really to present the most important statistics in a very succinct and widely understandable way. And so we use a lot of data-generated text, for instance. It is designed mobile first because we mm. knew two-thirds of our users would consume the data mobile on the go in the morning in between. So it, there's this COVID on-the-go information need was known. And in fact, we had twice as many mobile users as desktop users. Yeah. And what I really love about the dashboard is how it shows different perspectives and aggregations on the same data, especially for that very reason to make sure everybody gets something out of it, be it people who just want to see the newest top-level number or the long-term trend or want to have a more emotional approach. So we have a little vaccination clock that tells you how many people per second are being vaccinated. And that sort of addresses totally different, like pathways you know in your brain almost yeah, because you're yeah. sort of relating to it suddenly on a personal level and you think about all the individuals right yeah i'm wondering with the different use cases you had in mind from you know say a policy maker trying to track you know progress on, on rolling out the vaccine versus you know are you are you trying to encourage people to get vaccinated just curious you know what are those how did you try and weave those those different goals together and what were those specific goals Yeah, that's a great point. So it, it's a communication product from the Ministry of Health. So there was a plan also to communicate to everybody what is the progress of vaccination, be very transparent about the numbers and, and really show in the, the most up-to-date way, this is where we actually are, right? And 
as you say, some of the audience were experts or policymakers, but a lot of it was the general public just to understand this is how far along we are on that vaccination campaign. Mm. And for instance, we knew experts would be um, understanding the, the overall timeline and would have like a, a neutral or like, you know, sort of calm view on the overall timeline. We knew for the general public, we also need to talk about intermediate goals and, and also introduce that notion of there is constant progress, right? And so that's why we introduced this vaccination clock and also a little milestone section that highlights, you know, it's just 2% of people have been vaccinated, but that's our first million, right? And the first million is something we can celebrate. It's, you know, it's, it's one step on that journey. And so all these things, in a way, they all say it's always the same numbers, right? But by framing it in different ways, we can address different people in different contexts and expectations in different ways. And so we just increase the chance somebody can draw something out of it or we, we, we address people in the right way, ultimately. What's, what's been the most surprising reaction uh, that you've received uh, or, or, or conclusion that people have come uh, out of the data? Yeah. And so we got lots of feedback on social media, obviously, when you do something in that space. Um, and I think a lot of people were really very positively surprised in terms of, oh, it's an official website and it's actually built with like current web technologies and it's accessible and mobile first and internationalized. And, you know, it's like it, it really works well and smooth. So we got a lot of good feedback there. The clock was actually quite polarizing. So some people said, they love it. They always watch it, you know, just to calm down and sort of, you know, be a bit like it's almost therapeutic to many people. And others said, oh, that's such a misleading information of, you know, representation of information. And you make like small vaccination numbers look big. And it's, it's an, you know, a, a trick almost we're doing here. So this one, maybe similar to the New York Times needle in I 2016 was, say, was, was a very polarizing <laughs> metaphor. And I, but I think that's so interesting because suddenly people res like react in an emotional way to data. And I think this always sets things in motion, right? And, and you sort of start a debate and a conversation and um, suddenly people remember your data and, and because it has personal meaning uh, to them. Yeah, I think there's 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 some some metric somewhere that's valuable in terms of you know how bimodal or polarized a response you get to your visualization yeah, yeah. in terms of how controversial. You know, is, yeah, is, is, is it really yeah. impacting the public discourse or, or the way people are thinking about a, a topic? Again, because it wasn't the only thing we showed. It, it was more we did yeah. something on different aggregation and abstraction levels, um, so you could get the precise numbers anytime they, they were annotated. So. So, so one thing that uh, you know, is oftentimes referred to as a pitfall in visualization design is starting to build out something before you have the data. And it sounds like you had this sort of real-time process where the data infrastructure was still being put in place while you're in the process of designing this dashboard. And so, um, you know, either reflecting on that or other projects, I'm really curious, you know, beyond basic preparation, you know, what is the role that data plays in your process? And really how do the early mm -hmm. stages of, of working with a, a new data set or a new, um, you know, pipeline um, inform your design work in a meaningful way? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's why I said it's also an unusual project because usually when a client comes to me and says like, hey, we want to do this data heavy project and you do these cool data visualizations. Can you help us? I'm always uh, like, okay, I, I need to understand the purpose of this whole thing and the context and who's going to use it. Like, why should it even exist? 
does it have to be a visualization? You know, so I want to get this clear. And the other thing is I want to have sample data straight away and otherwise I want to start, right? Mm -hmm. In this case, we had a pandemic, so I was a bit loose on the second criterion. You know, I was like, okay, let's do it nevertheless. <laughs> but still, it, it, it's always good to start with actual data because it will give you better ideas. We solved it in this case by rolling out an MVP early and then kept iterating, right? That works too. If you just do something that's where you know that's going to be useful regardless of the exact shape of the data. It's just like the most obvious things you can do and then you iterate. But usually, again, for me, the design process requires really having the data and exploring data texture, uh, any potential insights, um, or also what shapes the data maybe wants to have almost, you know, so that's things you keep rediscovering, like you look at data like this way and that way, and it always has this weird like bend to it or this weird flakiness or, you know, there's always a character that comes with each data set. And I try to sort of explore that character and and then uh, give it a form that, that makes that really shine and, and really obvious and, and, and um, appealing. And um, so I, I try to get a lot of like views on the data. It's almost like, let's say I have to write a, a travel book or something. So, so I would mm -hmm. travel to the country first and try all the different foods. And, and then I would summarize and say like, hey, if you just have like two weeks, you know, these are the five restaurants you should visit. So I try to find the, the really good spots in the data that people should should now see based on what I've learned just from working with the data a lot. The Anthony Bourdain of data. <laughs> <laughs> Almost. That's, oh, maybe that's a new profession. So I do have a data cuisine project as well. <laughs> There's so many parallels between food and, and data. Yeah, I could write a whole book on that. <laughs> no, but long story short, like data exploration is to me really key to even find a good visual form. I can never do that in the void or just on paper. It, it has to work by by working with the material. Uh, for me, I mean, that's a, that's a personal thing, but that's, that's how it works for me. Up front, you mentioned uh, quality data. Uh, and I'm curious, some of the challenges you encountered dealing with, you know, issues of quality, you know, consistency, um, you know, uh, format, um, you know, just all the things that you had to contend with. Yeah, yeah. It's a huge issue. And um, honestly, also in my work, I'm moving more and more from just styling data sets or like wrapping them to really think deeply about what is the data we should collect in the first place. Are the indicators we're tracking here actually expressing, expressing the thing you want to know? Are they really representing the phenomenon you're looking for? Or is it just a superficial or just a slice of it, right? And to me, data design also means really thinking about what is a good aggregation for that data how how granular should we present it um what what parts should we um, emphasize or leave out and and really think about data transformation as part of the design process and the more you do that you realize you can't really separate the the visual design from the data shape design and the data transformation design in the end it's the same thing and because you think uh, these numbers, people will will basically need the sum and maybe the the trend from the last week as a single number, and or then you meet other people who have more granular information needs, and they will need the the data in a form that's more on a daily basis, and this will both affect the chart and and your pre processing. So I don't really separate these two and. So really figuring out what can the data tell us and does it represent the right phenomenon is, is huge and, and I think such a big part of, of designing in that space. 
And the other part is really working with data. It, it can be such a mess. <laughs> so much data is, <laughs> is a huge mess. And learning about that and understanding what also the limitations of certain data sets are or how you could clean them up or maybe how you could even have visual tools to clean them up, right, is is all in the end will all so much affect the quality of, of the output in the end, right? Yeah, that's a great idea, Adam. I think someone should should get going on building visual tools for for data cleaning and preparation. Heard right? it here first. I think that's <laughs> I, that's, that's a that's an inspired idea. I'm really excited Absolutely. about it. Something that someone might pour their their entire uh, existence into over maybe like a ten year period. You know. <laughs> yeah. So, Moritz, uh, another project of yours that I always loved was the the visualizations you built for Deutsche Bahn, uh, the German train network. I remember seeing you give a really lovely talk about this uh, a couple of years ago at Open VizConf. Uh, one of you share for for the listeners kind of what the process was like there, particularly where now you have real time analytics about traffic on the on the rail network, uh, and then people have to make make sense of that. What was it like uh, working in that context? Yeah, no, that was a very exciting and really also for me personally a very transformative project. So I did a lot of communication oriented projects before and like data experiments and like almost data artworks often, right? So I just explored form a lot and, and how we can communicate to people. And the tool for Deutsche Bahn is really a highly specialized internal tool for experts to help manage the, um, the passenger loads in the German train network. So um, for Deutsche Bahn, it's not great if the, some trains are super full because then the travelers are not happy and other trains are too empty because then the revenue is not there. So you try to even out imbalanced travel situation so mm -hmm. every train should be somewhat full that's that's the ideal and in order to do that you need to spot bottlenecks and understand like systemic level uh yeah like traveler flows and, and passenger flows and ideally do that for the future because you want to adjust the prices so that people book the right trains um and they did a lot of work internally with off-the-shelf tools um or like standard dashboarding software and they realized they need a really highly customized visual to solve that very specific problem and yeah luckily enough they they got in touch with me and again together with studio nand I, I built this tool for them internally that started as a small data visualization project or experiment like hey can we with a custom visual maybe you know be more successful and it turned basically over the years into a whole suite of custom in-house products and everybody's very excited now about web-based um like crafted visuals for for really very specific business purposes and um, i think it really showed inside that really big organization that if you give data a very like bespoke form that's that's not not just for you know enjoyment but it can be super effective to work with with very custom visuals and mm. and again i think it also worked so well especially that first version because i was able to get a whole uh, data set so we show 100 days ahead for thousands of trains per day, all the predicted passenger loads. So it's all predictive, right? So it, it is actually a lot of data. But by talking to users and exploring the data, we realized looking at it one day at a time is exactly the right window size people need. So they want to know which days are interesting, and then they want to go into a day and look where are the bottlenecks on that day. And by understanding that, just from from a user point of view, that this is sort of a way we can make this huge data set work in a very snappy way because we can just concentrate on a day and highly optimize around that. 
uh, we were able to build the MVP again very quick. So again, it's like a clever design decision that was deeply informed by understanding user needs, but also the the shape of the data and and what what will work. And not assuming, oh, we need this huge generic infrastructure mm. and need to build that for half a year before we even figure out what to do with it, right? It's much more, okay, what do people need? What do we have? How can we match this in a smart way? Yeah, I remember appreciating uh, the design, what I think was like the, the workhorse of the system, right? Which are these, you know, bespoke statistical graphics on the load. But I think you also had like these fancy animated maps. And, you know, you should correct me if I'm wrong, but my memory was like, this was completely useless for the analysts in their everyday work. But then visitors would come to the office and then you'd pull that up on their screen. And then like, you know, politicians or others would then just be wowed with the uh, the sophistication of the tools at work. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and we did like four or five versions, like visualization versions of show me the bottlenecks on a day, right? Like different aggregations and slicings. And the list, a plain sortable list with smart, like row-sized graphics, but still basically a sortable list is is like the 80% of use cases. So we track usage, so we know that. Mm. Uh, and other views are more, yeah, some people use it in special situations and the map is among them, the animated map. But it's it was still important to include it because it symbolized for so many people we have real-time high-level access to that data. You know, you don't see that in a list that you see the system as a whole, right? And and it's also important to deliver these visual symbols for, for a whole project mm. or like iconic graphics mm -hmm. that people can say, oh, I remember this project, you know, it, it had this, you know, this, this red and orange map um, with these trails. So just this idea that you, you also, your visuals need to be somewhat unique and 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 intriguing just so people have a mental hook and mm. remember a product you know and so there's a branding to this aspect to to good data graphics as well yeah i was going to say it almost sounds like a, it's a merchandising strategy you know to uh yeah. to figure out how do we how do we connect with people to get them even if they're going to spend all their time just on yeah. some of the the basic you know rows and columns you know how, how does it you know get to a point where Uh, it invites them in in ways that, you know, uh, are appealing to them that cause them to then invest the time um, to, to do the further exploration. There's always an emotional aspect. We, we are emotional animals, you know, and so we, uh, nobody's helped if we always abstract that away and, and assume everybody's just an objective, optimized robot. You know, what, what good is that? <laughs> so <laughs> there needs to be enjoyment. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, for us, uh, you know, even dating back to the early, you know, research that uh, Joe and Jeff and Sean did that, you know, created uh, Trifactor, there was always this sense of how do we help people get eyes, you know, on the data early, um, you know, as they're working with the data, um, you know, and, and really thinking about, you know, some of that, um, the, the way the visualizations, you know, complement and entice people to, explore a little further to point out, you know, where there may be, uh, interesting, um, you know, extreme values, outliers, you know, other, other things that, you know, might be the most interesting insight in the data set that, that could have potentially been missed. Mm -hmm. Um, if it wasn't for a visualization that kind of helped point out and direct some, some of those, uh, some of that interactive discovery that was going on, um, and, and, and really trying to understand that more fully. So, um, completely, completely agree with you there. And so much of that is just being a catalyst for conversation. So sometimes even the exact content of a chart is not even the point, but just the fact that it's there and you can point to it and, and start a conversation about it. Um, 
you know and so it's mm-hmm. so often that the the actual social process that it's being kicked off is is the real thing and and i know we all love data visualization but uh these days of course uh lots of hype and energy around machine learning machine learning ai etc cetera, etc cetera. um but i know you've also been uh, incorporating some of those methods in your own work uh for example in multiplicity your interactive photo journal of paris which is beautiful work if you, people haven't seen it go go check it out uh, online um after the podcast of course um i know you that you used a dimensionality reduction to try and meaningfully organize photos taken throughout the city and so i'm wondering if you have any thoughts on the promise and pitfalls of applying machine learning um within these design projects yeah so dimensionality reduction was actually my start into data visualization because i was fascinated with the idea that we can make maps of information spaces you know mm. it's, i was like wow yeah that's so cool we can map text document spaces and have continents and countries there and you know it's just organize everything spatially that that was actually how i sort of got into the whole thing and so it's it's sort of interesting and that's why i keep coming back also to these techniques because they can I don't know, compress like super high multidimensional information to something manageable. You know, that's almost like a metaphor for what we do, right? It's compression. In which case I have a bonus lightning round question for you, which is, you know, in this context, you know, organization or hallucination? (laughs) (laughs) I, okay. That's a, that's a philosophical one. Um, I, I don't think there's any objective, like, objectively true organization but if it helps mm. it helps you know mm-hmm, it's like mm-hmm, any mm-hmm. any models all models are wrong but some of them are, are more useful so that's my take on on anything database so mm-hmm. <laughs> well played so, well played <laughs> okay i hope i hope i was able to steal myself out of this one <laughs> yeah and i mean generally machine learning i think it's super fascinating but also super hard to tame these beasts and to me it's something like almost like 3d or maybe also cartography or so it's something everybody loves to dabble with but to do it really well Mm -hmm. you should concentrate on it and it's such a fast moving field and so i feel it's so often so hard to wrap your head around what's going on in all these you know multi-layer whatevers <laughs> that it's sort of fun to play with it and sort of poke it and see what it does when i do xyz but in order to make it useful you have to go really deep and really have yeah large teams with a lot of phds working on it um which is maybe a whole other question about you know inequality there or who has access to the necessary technical financial and intellectual resources to even benefit from machine learning absolutely i'm a bit worried there might be a bit of a too steep imbalance there um at some point yeah i think that's uh, that point's really well taken even now i have a a number of colleagues uh, people i really respect and admire they're half time in industry and so the role you know and they're all um, typically on the, the ai machine learning or natural language processing computer vision side so there's definitely a big alignment just in academic research and tech there. So I think that's a, a really important point. Uh, one that's has a, has a lot of influence on, on our future too. So uh, we'd love to hear one of your true data stories. You know, is there a data wrangling challenge that stands out to you as particularly interesting or memorable? Oh, I mean, there's so many. It's, it's always, always a surprise when you open that, the data.zip file you get. Um, uh, so, I think like two years ago, or one and a half years ago, that my biggest challenge, and, and I spent a lot of time on that, is 
I was asked to analyze all texts ever written in the magazine Scientific American. <laughs> and yeah. and that sounded great, but then I learned it has a 175-year history. So basically, the first editions were from 1849 or something, you know? Mm -hmm. And so... <laughs> um, a, the dataset was huge, and B, it was very messy because it came from OCR, right? So it was old printed, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. There, there was no digital original of, of like 99% of the ligatures get mapped to weird things you've never seen. Exactly. <laughs> you could see every font change over the decades because the OCR sort of maybe, yeah. Right. You predict the font from the, the error profile. <laughs> sure. Exactly. And they shipped me a hard drive because it was a really large data set with like, yeah, uh, like hundreds of gigabytes of, of uh, PDFs. And it was like the most, it's such a treasure, you know, it's such a privilege to work on that data set, but it was also really hard to tame. So it so I used a lot of like Python notebooks and like pandas and uh, yeah, different natural language processing techniques to tame that beast. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, learned a lot uh, along the way. But then we built really beautiful and interesting like trend graphics showing like which yeah, which individual words trended like over which decades or years uh, in, in the past of that magazine. I think that's such a yeah, I love these types of data sets where you, you feel like, oh, you can see all of, you know, a, a slice of human history captured there. And it's, it's so fascinating. Um, uh, but in general, text is hard. So I always underestimate text processing or like working with text. It's always difficult because all the semantic nuance and all the different formulations and all the, yeah, the interesting stuff actually, but it's, it's so hard to capture in, in a structured way. And, the other thing is always human entered data, like with Excel sheets, with all the invisible spaces and things that are dates that should be dates and, and zip codes <laughs> that miss leading zeros and uh, internationalization differences, you know, and so that's... Yeah, that's the not so fun part of data wrangling, I guess. Yeah, it's well, just yeah, dealing with syntactic yeah. problems. You yeah, know, the that's standardization. Nobody asks problem. for. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 And there's, I mean, it's, it's great, and there's a lot of things that you can do that help automate the process. But I feel like you know, true data wrangling always has this um, very manual aspect of figuring out well, what is the problem that matters most what i'm trying to do and then how do i you know put out that fire and then what's the next largest fire um exactly. and you know yeah. it's like yeah. it's but yeah um i remember you know when the community of professional designers that were producing interactive web-based visualizations was pretty tight-knit and i think you could more or less fit that that crowd in a single auditorium hmm. um and then in you know the years that have since elapsed the field really exploded and i'd say there's an entire industry now of data visualization professionals how has that transition felt to you? And in what ways have you know new fellow practitioners particularly inspired you? Yeah, so yeah, I'm old. Thanks for noticing. <laughs> oh, I am too, sorry. <laughs> okay. Makes We're us both together. old, right? Yeah. yeah. No, but so I, I, just a few days ago, my blog, Well-Formed Data, uh, where I started documenting my work basically around my master's thesis and which sort of became my, my place for publishing graphics, uh, turned 15. So, uh, so yeah, it's been 15 birthday. years since I've been, yeah, All thank you, <laughs> on behalf of my blog. <laughs> and you're absolutely right. It felt like the, the, like ambitious, advanced, creative data visualization world was, was small, but, but really, fast moving and like um really really producing great stuff at the time and and i think we've all seen the field evolve and grow and and 
from being well first a really crazy kid to a teenager and then <laughs> growing mm -hmm. up into mm -hmm. an adult basically <laughs> um which i find super fascinating because some things just kept so I feel some things are being rediscovered every three years. So I notice these cycles where, where you know, I'm like, okay, uh, didn't we have that before? Oh, yeah, other people haven't seen it, so they try it again. That's fine. Um, other things are really like long-term developments, I think, that, that are like constantly growing in one directions. And, and we've seen some trends die. And I think uh, I, I love looking at these long, long arcs, basically, and thinking about them. Yeah. Yeah, interesting there, the, these cycles. There's sort of a, a common trope, you know, over in the database world, you know, that every generation has to rediscover SQL for itself. Exactly. <laughs> you, your data management issues get more and more complex, and then you end up kind of like right back where your, your parents, so to speak, started, mm -hmm. which must be both insightful and frustrating. So looking forward, what keeps you up at night regarding the future of data visualization? Super fascinating. Um. Yeah, so I think I was surprised every year. So I often look back at the end of the year, hey, what was the year in DataVis? And so often I was really surprised at what happened. So I'm not a great predictor of the future. Mm -hmm. But something that keeps me always wondering is the role of how do we, what is the relation between like ready-made generic tools like Tableau, Looker, Click, Trifactor, you know, all, it's a huge zoo of tools by now, right? As compared to these custom crafted visuals made by designers, uh, built for a purpose, um, how are these walls converging? Are they sort of finding their own niche? Will they live in coexistence? You know, will, will the industry tools take over that custom crafted stuff? Or what, what's the, the role again for all this experimentation and the creative stuff? Then again, I've been thinking about that for five to 10 years now, and, and there's still a lot of space for this custom crafted visuals. And I can also see people who experiment with form and, and new media or new channels, basically how you can envision or visualize information. The substantial stuff always like finds its place. And I, I think that's, that's, that's so nice. It's, it's, it's like music, you know, it's, you just have 12 notes, but it's, there's always new music. And, yeah, and I just yeah, love that. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, it's, or, or it's, you it's discover so non-Western scales, right? There's always. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And boom. There's a paradigm shift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. And I'm, I'm just excited to explore like new, like channels basically. And I've done that a lot, like data sculptures or food for data visualization. Mm -hmm really interested in AR, VR, or, or mm. sonification, multi-sensory stuff. So that's something I, I'd love to experiment with. And uh, the, the other thing, like, I'm, I'm thinking much more about uh, accessibility now. Yes. Also, a, a side effect of the COVID dashboard, because I was like, this is for everybody in Germany. This is not just for the geeks or, like, you know, highly professionalized data experts with full capabilities you know it's just for everybody and i'm yeah i'm thinking much more about what it means to design for everybody um nowadays i think that's super exciting too yeah i think there's a, a growing recognition and um, reckoning within the visualization research community as well and the interesting thing is it opens so many avenues to much more interesting visuals and or data expressions, you know? And yeah. so I um, discovered text generation also on that path. Like how can we automatically generate meaningful text? 
or I was thinking again on the role of annotation, like maybe the things you would annotate in a graph are also the things you should read to a screen reader, right? Or there's a tight connection there. Um, maybe not any geographic data needs to be on a map, especially if it's on a small device. Maybe there's much, you know, more robust and simple forms to, to represent stuff that gets people faster to their, where they want to be. And th I think that's the exciting thing. If you think about this really, in a consequent way, you move away from this is the chart type I want. I want to make a bubble chart. I want to make a Sankey. And you think much more about what's the information need? What's the the scope of the data I'm showing? Mm -hmm. Where is that focus here? What is context info? How detailed does that context info need to be? Could be variable depending on context. And you, you're forced to think about what's the purpose of the whole thing? What am I doing here even, right? And then the chart type is just one little aspect of the final presentation. And there's so much more consideration that, that can go into all the rest. Well, a lot of great stuff to think about there. Thanks so much for joining us today, Moritz. Thank you, Jeff. And thank you, Adam. Thank you for joining us, Moritz. And we'll wrap up there this week. If you have a question or a topic you'd like us to tackle, reach out to us at datawranglers at trifacta.com. As always, make sure to review and subscribe to The Data Wranglers wherever you find your podcasts. The Data Wranglers podcast is brought to you by Trifacta, the data engineering cloud. On behalf of Adam Wilson, Joe Hellerstein, and the whole team, thanks for listening. I'm Jeff Hare. See you next time.